0: The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment. But as a passive investor with no day-to-day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership, the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast. But most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome, partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I am joined by Paul Shannon of Red Hawk Real Estate. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. Excited to be here. Yeah, it is so great to have you. I guess let's just dive right into it. Let's talk about your overall journey. You've got an interesting background. How did you get into this business? Tell me a little bit about how that looked.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, I spent probably almost a decade thinking about getting into the business and never actually pulling the trigger and making a move. I guess you could say I had kind of analysis paralysis in that sense. I had the bird in the hand syndrome where I was in a W-2 role that was you know, meeting all of our family's needs. We were able to put away some money and kind of saw retirement as something that we could achieve early. We just stuck with the plan. But all at the same time, I was pretty miserable in what I was doing. And the responsibility started to grow as I got into roles, you know, as my career advanced. Uh, at one point, I was traveling you know, 50 nights a week or 50 nights a year, I should say, it became 60 nights a year. And by 2018, I was gone 80 nights a year. This is while I was growing a small family. Now I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. But going back three years at that time, things were pretty hectic. You know, my son was about to be born. I kind of see the writing on the wall that my priorities weren't really aligning from a family and value standpoint with the work I was doing. So I had gotten into real estate a couple of years. Prior to that, I had bought a, uh, a duplex and managed the tenants that uh, came with it when, when I purchased the property. So I had a little bit of experience with uh, being a property manager, uh, manager, if you will. Worked with some contractors and uh, sort of developed relationships there. Shortly after that, I bought a house uh, from auction and it was a, a, a typical distressed property that needed quite a bit of work. So I uh, had a contractor there, we fixed the house up, we rented it out, uh, and I was able to refinance it and get all of my money out of that deal. That was kind of the deal that gave me the confidence to move forward and take a chance on myself, if you will. At that point, you know, I only had a few properties under my belt, but I saw scalability in both the relationships I was building as well as uh, in the process I was creating. And really it was more about just, hey, if I spend more time doing this, I dedicate my entire Uh, Professional life to building a business here, the fear of failure started to kind of drip away. That's when I jumped in full time. Since then, that was in 2019, done about 70 transactions single family homes, small multifamily. We've fixed and flipped. We've uh, kept some as rental properties. We've sold some turnkey to other investors, bought a 40 unit apartment building that we repositioned, and are in the process of refinancing right now. And I'm also a limited partner in multifamily syndications industrial syndications, and ATM fund as well. And I'm looking to allocate into, into some other asset classes. So kind of spread out all over the place. So I'm an active and a passive investor, and I see benefits to both. But what I love about passive investing is that it's really mailbox money, right? I mean, it's you've kind of researched the sponsor, the market, the asset class. And once you're comfortable with those things and uh, you wire your funds, you're pretty much in the backseat. But uh, every month or every quarter, you're going to get those distribution checks. And uh, it's, it's pretty easy money from that standpoint.
0: That's a great story. I'd love to dive in a little bit more on what was the trigger. How did you get into that first? Right. Because that's the one that changes everything. From a, a limited partner standpoint. Just into real estate. Because, right, you were working full time. You got into it. And like, but something, something was a trigger for that first deal. Oh,
1: well, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, kind of realizing that my priorities weren't aligning with, you know, my professional priorities weren't aligned with my values. And I wanted to live a life where I could choose where I spent my time. Uh, I wanted to choose a life where, you know, if I had a family event going on or friends were getting together, I could put that as my first priority versus work. My work at that time was very demanding. It pretty much came above everything else. As I would continuously wake up and and not be excited about the day to come, there was just this burning desire inside of me to to take a chance on myself. That entrepreneurial spirit just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, And to the point where it got so rough that the, how should I phrase this? The biggest risk was not ch- taking a chance on myself at that point. It wasn't leaving my company and starting something new and failing. The biggest risk was staying with what I was doing and looking back 20 or 30 years from a future standpoint, looking back on life at that point and saying, man, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have tried. Because really when you look at things from a different lens, you can always look at the downside and what could happen and, and how risky something is and, and take the worst case scenario that, that is out there. And a lot of times when I was thinking about leaving, I would think of that worst case scenario and that would be like the reality in my mind. Like I couldn't get past that. Like that's what's going to happen. But you know, really, and when you really break things down, if you mitigate risk, if you do research, if you take actionable steps every day, that risk becomes smaller and smaller. And it's likely that the biggest risk that you have isn't going to happen at all. So I started to think about what could go right instead of what could go wrong. And I think that's to answer your question when things started to change for me is that I had a little bit of confidence. I had the education. I had taken some actionable steps and then
0: realized that, okay, you know, let's do this. Let's go all in. We'll switch gears. Cause I really like where you're going with that. The idea is to get out of kind of the nine to five grind. Which becomes, you know, we all know, we've we've all, that it, all of us that have been in it. The longer you're there, the more responsibilities, the harder it is to kind of make that that shift, right? Because you, you, the risk is bigger. I always tell everybody that I talk to, man, if I could have done this right out of college, it'd be like so much further along. But you know, now that you're doing it full time, you still you you're finding that excitement that started it. Or you, what keeps you excited about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, what I don't have is the Sunday blues anymore, where I wake up Sunday and think, Oh, darn it! You know, Monday's right around the corner here, thinking about what's going to happen that week and how much I don't want to do those activities. For me, work is exciting now, and there's no nine to five about it. It's really, you know, when I feel like working, I'm working, which happens to be probably about as much as I was working before. It's just on my own terms, doing the things that I want to do at times when I want to do it. So it's not necessarily nine to five. It could be seven to, you know, eight. It could be you know, 8 to 11 p.m. at night. But I'm doing activities that are driving my business and that are meaningful to me. So I think that's the biggest difference is, you know, the activities and, and what I'm participating in are things that I want to do. So yeah, I am so excited about it. And I'm hungry to learn more because there's so much out there from an investing standpoint, whether it's, you know, real estate or any other asset class, Uh, Tax strategy. There really is a wealth of information in today's society with the internet, with podcasts, with all the information that's readily available for free, with all the networking opportunities. There's no excuse really why you can't be self educated. You know, people have their professional advisors, whether it's a financial advisor, an accountant, a lawyer. You can go to an accountant, for example. I remember I went three or four years ago and I said, Hey, is there anything that I can do to shelter my income on my taxes this year? The answer was a simple no. Okay. Well, then I did all this research on my own and realized, Hey, you know, these are there's a number of strategies out there. I just have to take that first step. And then I have to go to my accountant with this sort of model of what I want to do. And then they can help me and make sure I don't step in any landmines. But it's on you as a person, just like it is on your health. You can't go to a doctor's office and expect them to cure all your ailments. You have to be an active participant in your health your entire life leading up to that physical where you go in. So it's the same thing with an accountant. It's the same thing with a professional advisor. You're accountable to yourself. To me, it's just really interesting to study personal finance and all the ways that you can build wealth. So I get excited every day about that. And real estate just happens to be the niche that I've chosen to be really actively involved in, but I'm kind of interested in
0: everything. Yeah. I think where you're going, right? So you brought up your limited part in some deals. You mentioned that's mailbox money. And I think that that's what a lot of people are looking for, right? Not everybody's going to jump out of their, their nine to five job and say, hey, I'm going to become a, a realist. And I think what, part of what you're alluding to, and I'd like to flesh this out a little bit more is you don't really have to, right? Because there are folks that are out there beating these deals up, doing the due deal. they're looking for And then, you know, the, limited partner is ask mailbox money, right? How would you feel comfortable investing with somebody else? What, what would the steps? Great question. Before I answer it, you hit
1: on something that kind of sums up everything that we've been talking about, and that's time freedom, right? And that's of what mailbox money is all about and for me right now it's fun to be active but there'll come a point where you know maybe i'm i'm ready to retire i'm kind of ready to take a step back to me you know at 40 years old sitting around on a beach sipping a a margarita just isn't that exciting to me it may be for some others but it gets old after a while so you have to have something that inspires you and drives you to grow as a person professionally and mentally and, and everything as it relates to development being active right now is fun but at the end of the day you know, when I'm older, and there's not as much time or I've, you know, other things to consider like health mailbox money is going to be where it's at being a passive limited partner or collecting dividends off of stocks or whatever the case may be at that time. But so yeah, I enjoy being a limited partner. I learn from other sponsors that are running these syndications, if you will, as general partners, but how I evaluate criteria and how I get in, it's not like any other investment, really. A lot of it's word of mouth. A lot of it's connecting and networking and kind of understanding who that person is, what their experience level is, you know, what their philosophy is. So really it starts with the sponsor of the deal. If it's real estate it also is important to identify the market. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. It could be that it's a great sponsor and they've got a great track record but I'm not really interested in investing in Detroit, Michigan I hate to pick on Detroit. I used to live in Detroit you know and then it could be that it's a great market but it's a bad sponsor. Uh, it's a sponsor that are you know my particular investment philosophy doesn't align with theirs it, it could be a great deal and a bad sponsor could make it a not so great deal. so those are the first two things I would look at kind of interchangeably. Uh, I think the sponsor is really the most important thing to get right though. And then at that point, once you've evaluated what geographic region you want to invest in, if it's a real estate deal or if it's not, what sponsor would you like to invest in? Then it comes down to the deal level, right? And is this a good deal? I think the first time you invest in a deal like this, it's difficult. You know, you have to really understand the metrics, how the sponsor is telling the story to get the numbers to come out where they're presented on the pro forma. You have to kind of watch out for the legal language that's in the private placement memorandum. There's a lot of intimidating type activities here leading up to this. You may want to have your attorney look at some of the documentation. But just like anything else, when you start, the first time is always the hardest. And then after that, you start to really see the the playing field. You start to see the force through the trees. And it's much easier moving forward as you you continue on that path. Same thing goes for investing in in
0: syndications as a limited partner. Yeah, I think you you bring up a really interesting dichotomy that might scare people a little bit when you think about how do you figure out if it's a good sponsor, right? And then picking the market. And I think to a certain degree, it's the sponsor's responsibility to bring you a good deal and a good market and get you comfortable. Like, obviously, you you can do your own due diligence, but I think that most sponsors should be looking in quality markets. They should be able to back up their support and their claim. And then really as a limited partner, as a passive investor, you should just be able to do a little bit of work to substantiate with that, right? Because like, I think most people would say, I feel comfortable investing in my own backyard, but that's not necessarily the right place to put your, that might not be where there's a lot of growth. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I would agree. As far as my syndications that I'm invested in as a passive limited partner, none of them are local to me. And that's strategic because I'm a real estate operator myself and I operate in my backyard. I don't feel comfortable as an active operator investing outside of my area because I want to be within driving distance of any project that I have going on so I can have active control over it and oversee the day-to-day. I live in Indianapolis. We're in the Midwest where it's more of a cash flow market than there's an appreciation market historically. The Rust Belt, a lot of the product is similar. There's some older properties here that need a fair bit of work that you can add value to. There's you know, a lot more history here as far as uh, populations being around for one hundred and fifty years versus some of the markets in the south are you know relatively new or, or really growing. so a lot of the properties are new down there. you have more development going on, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, investing locally didn't make sense. I wanted to diversify a way for myself as an operator, but I also wanted to diversify into some of the markets that have different characteristics than my own. Like in the South, for example, where you have population movement, you have demographics that are very supportive of rent growth. Uh, You have jobs being created down there and you know, they're more desirable places to live from a uh, weather and everything else standpoint. So to me, that made sense. Like if I'm going to go after this mailbox money, I'm going to go somewhere where I can't get that money actively myself, or it's very difficult to do so, you know, running my own business. That's
0: kind of how I looked at it. It bring up an interesting point there too. So if you're looking at evaluating a sponsor, do you want them local?
1: Well, well because you know my the markets that i was selecting i'm invested in Greenville South Carolina Raleigh North Carolina Tampa, Florida, Tucson, Arizona, San Antonio, Texas. That wasn't the reality for me. Uh, would I like to know them personally and have a handshake and a look in the eye when we sign the deal? Sure, that'd be nice. Uh, but it's not necessarily the most important thing to me because I, I think being geographically concentrated right here would, would be too much of a risk. I would have a lack of diversification in my real estate portfolio where I've got about half of my equity right now tied up in my own deals locally and then another half allocated to these limited partner deals. To me, that was the most important thing. And that kind of goes back to how I look at deals. First, from a real estate perspective, it was the geography. Then it was defining the sponsor within that geography, and then it was kind of analyzing their deals and understanding the metrics and how they underwrite to make a decision as to whether I was going to move forward with a specific offering.
0: All right, well let's let's turn the page a little bit here and talk about mistakes that you've learned. Right. So, what's the biggest mistake you've made, and what did you learn?
1: Well, back to the beginning where we we're talking about my story, I'd say the biggest mistake I've made was not getting started sooner. I had about ninety percent of my wealth in stocks and another ten percent in bonds, and was you know just dollar cost averaging into the market and and working and working and working, giving myself no time to educate and, you know, look at uh, other opportunities to make an income. And I put up with that for too long. And it affected me mentally and physically, actually, too, where you're you know, traveling overnight so much, you've got dinners and, you know, entertainment with clients, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You might have a bottle of wine, there might be a steak, it's a lifestyle that can, uh, can lead to health problems down the road. So I wish I would have jumped out of that sooner and taken a chance on myself sooner. However, the perspectives and experiences make you who you are. So it's difficult to have regrets when it comes to that, because I think all those experiences were valuable. I certainly learned a lot in my career. I met some great people uh, in my professional career and had some great experiences. And it led me to where I am today. So I would say that was overall, if I could give advice on someone that's kind of maybe 10 years younger that is looking at their career and saying, hey, I wish I could get out of this. What do I need to do? I'd say educate at a baseline, read some books, talk to some advisors, talk to some mentors, find people that are where you want to be 10, 20 years out and hang out with them buy him some coffee, but at a certain point you have to take action. Nobody's going to do that for you. What I didn't do was take action soon enough. I kept reading books, I kept meeting for coffee. I kept doing this and that, and the other thing, except for actually doing something that was going to uh, lead me in that, uh, that next direction. that's kind of what I think was the biggest mistake. From an actual investing standpoint, any specific investment, you know, I've bought some older homes that have had a fair bit of work to do on them, and you know, there's always surprises. So from the active investing standpoint side, thinking that you can actually nail a budget every single time. And what I found is that you can get pretty close, but every house has a story and uh, you're not going to know until you really get in there to figure it out. Holding back adequate reserves to be able to handle kind of anything that happens. And that could go and apply to being a limited partner as well. You have the potential for a capital call. You know, Deals might not work out or mature when you think they might. Just always having cash reserves, I think, is something that uh, is helpful and will keep you out of a
0: lot of trouble. Yeah, There's a little bit to unpack there, but I think that one, when you learn some lessons the hard way, Right. I think that when we all start off, I, mean, I know that we are always really hopeful about all of our deals, you know, like especially the, the small rehabs on the ones, you know, it's like, oh, we can get in out of this thing for 10 grand. And it's like, if everything was perfect, and to your point, it, it's not always. And there can be some significant. So being a little bit more conservative, I think that comes with time. But I think if you take that and flip it into the larger deal, right, so you're looking at an operating or you're looking at a, a limited partnership, they're going to buy a large multi what are your thoughts on capital risk, right? And just making sure that there is, right? Because everybody wants to paint a rosy picture. And obviously, the rosier the picture, the higher the the returns.
1: Yeah, I mean, that all boils down to kind of like the sponsor's track record and their philosophy on how they're going to operate the property. And uh, reserves are one thing. Charlie Munger, a great investing mind, always used, if he could boil down, I think his phrase was, if he could boil down investing to one phrase, it was margin of safety. And to me, if you look at holistically at any offering or investment, that is a critical component of it is what the margin of safety and what i'm seeing right now in a ultra liquid environment is that people are chasing hard assets and real estate falls in that category because everyone's worried about inflation and where we're going and and the bond market and where can we get some income and and real estate has really attracted quite a bit of that capital and i think it will continue to do so but it's also become ultra competitive uh, on the acquisition side with general partners so and i think a lot of them realize that they can raise capital Relatively easily, uh, they make fees when they do that. Whether it be, you know, the acquisition fee or the asset management fee, this is the income that they're living off of, with the hope that one day there's a large disposition, you know, they're promote. So I think the one thing to watch out for is that the interests of the limited partners are aligned with the general partners and they're not working just for the fees and for the upside potential that they hope happens. Because right now, if you tear down some of the underwriting, there's some rent growth assumptions that go out into the future that are, are fairly aggressive. There's some that are underwriting reversion cap rates. They're basically anticipating interest rates today will stay the same as they will when they go to sell or refinance the property, which I find to be highly unlikely if we're in a three to five-year hold pattern. Not to scare anyone away with that type of information. But I think that's all the more important reason to find operators that have been around the block a little bit, that have experienced market cycles and downturns, that have gone through the financial crisis. Because right now, if anybody bought apartments in 2012 and they've been operating since then, it's been like a highlight reel nonstop. It's been relatively easy to operate flip apartments. And I'll use that term, flip, because that's what's going on right now. But when the market turns, that's going to be really where the rubber meets the road. And not to say that we're going to have some major crisis, but I just think you want to ride with people that have been around a little bit, understand these things. You'll see a lot today that there's these pure capital raisers. And I don't know if that's prevalent in other assets outside of of real estate, but these are people that just have connections with high net worth individuals. And they're kind of attracting these folks to invest in deals that they get a piece of with another sponsor. I think a really important question to ask as a limited partner is, hey, what's your role in this deal? If you're having an introductory investor call, are you the main sponsor? Are you the operator of this deal? Or are you a capital raiser? Are you going to be managing the asset? Are you going to be doing due diligence? What is your specific role in this deal? And how many others are a part of the general partnership? Really identifying who that person is. That's really not a problem when you're talking with someone that's you know been doing this since the year 2000. But if they've been doing it since 2018 or 19, I think that's really relevant before you uh, make an investment.
0: You brought up some great points. You think about cap rate, current cap rates. So let's talk about multifamily. So the office space has been nobody knows, right? I think there's a lot of there's so much money and there's so much hype about real estate right now that I think off and around. But office used to be the for invest, right? It's always going to be office, tons of square footage out there. Everybody goes to work, and now those there's a lot of uncertainty there, right? So the cap rates reflect that. So they're in the you know Class A office space could be in the seven cap rate, right? But Everybody jumped in a multifamily because it's like everybody needs a house and everybody's house is now their office, right? So it's pulling double duty. And you're seeing cap rates in like the 3% range, right? Which is, I think to your point, reversionary cap rates is like, where is that going to go? Like, what is a stabilized cap rate in the future? And if you think the typical hold is maybe five to seven years, that's a long time for these things to kind of stabilize and think. So, you know, it's tough to buy at a three, but it, you you love to sell at it a- all day. Yeah. If your model is based on that, that's something just to look out for, right? So I think that that's a great point is, is you're investigating, looking at deals, especially in like the multifamily. What is the eggs? Like, what are they project? Because today's market is very int- You know, it's, it's unique. You said a lot there too. And that's, Those are great points. Again,
1: going back to the margin of safety, one of the things that developers look at is what's called the development thread. And they want to know, okay, what's the market cap rate? And if I build this thing, when I get it stabilized at pro forma, what is that pro forma NOI going to be divided by my total cost of the project? And whatever that number is should be above the market cap rate. And that spread is called a development spread. That can be applied to a value add project as well, one where it's an older property that needs a fair bit of work, and you're going to go in and you know fix things up and raise rents and lower operating costs, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, what does that look like at the end of the day? What's that pro forma NOI going to look like by to buy what you pay for the property and then what you put into it? And there's got to be a spread there. And it, it seems like operators are doing is they're buying at a stabilized price with a value-add asset, and then they're going to put all this money into it. And there's really no spread there at all once they get it stabilized. So they're paying like almost like a future value for the property today. Those are the kind of deals that I don't like at all. You know, if it's a value add project, let's say it's a you know B plus class property in a growing market that's built in 2013. You know, that's a fairly stable property. It probably doesn't have a too much deferred maintenance. Good market. It's going to continue to have demand for uh, for units. Maybe a 50 basis point development spread is an adequate number to to look at. Maybe that's 50 basis points is solid. But if you're going into my market and it's a C class product built 100 years ago is very unstable, and you apply that same 50 basis point metric to that type of a product, that's a terrible deal. you know, you got to have to look at things like, if I'm going to put all this money into it, or if there's really a value-add potential here, and that might be the most overused term in multifamily investing, and maybe all of real estate right now, If it really is truly a value add. What is the value? Is the work that you're going to put into it worth it at the end of the day? Are you actually stabilizing the property where your efforts are going to lead to a reward for you as the sponsor, or you as the limited partner, or you as the operator? As otherwise, it's not a very good deal. That's where you hear probably a lot of people are overpaying for properties because they're paying the stabilized price for a very unstable product.
0: Those are great points. Well, on this show, we like to talk about giving back and thanks to people that have helped us get where we are, right? Because you alluded to it in the beginning, there's a lot of people that are willing to help a lot of pay this road. Who has helped you along the way that you'd like to give a shout? out?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, that's a great question. Well, I mean, without the support of my family and my wife, I take a leap from a uh, well-paying career to jumping into entrepreneurship and really having you know, very limited resources at that time. Couldn't have done it without her or the support of, of all my family. So I think that's probably the most critical piece to me. Finally, getting over the hump and having the confidence to believe in myself. So that may not be the the quantitative answer that you're looking for, but I would say that's a big one. And from a professional standpoint, you know everybody's had mentors along the way. It, it, I think it's important to have solid mentors every stage of your career, whether you're you know a kingpin or you're just starting out. you know there's always somebody that's a step ahead of you. and it's not worth comparing yourself all the time to people that are are one step ahead because that's not fair to yourself. That's not a good way to live. If you can provide value to those people, they're going to give it back to you, you know, tenfold. So i found that I've had multiple mentors in my life, and for me now, it's about giving back as much as it's receiving. Uh, I love to connect with investors that are just starting out in their journey and are kind of going through the process of getting over that hurdle. Maybe they don't know how to connect the dots on, you know, how to leave their W-2 behind and, and get into real estate like I've done. So uh, whether that's budgeting or you know how you look at your finances or tax strategy or how you acquire properties and who to connect with, who to network with, uh, any of those things. I provide some coaching people in that position. So uh, I really enjoy giving back as much as I benefited from giving when I was in my younger years and just kind of learning.
0: That's awesome. Well, Paul, thank you. Uh, To the partners out there, we'll have Paul's contact information in the show notes. But Paul, thank you for joining us. And this has been a great episode. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.